everyone. Welcome to our latest episode. I am Vivian, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse podcast. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation spanning leaders across the healthcare ecosystem. Today, we're super excited to have Stephanie Strong, CEO and founder of Boulder Care, as our guest today. Stephanie has spent her career focused on innovation in healthcare, working to move the industry forward through venture capital investing, entrepreneurship, World Bank-funded research in India, and systems innovation at Duke University Medical Center. In 2017, Stephanie founded Boulder Care, a digital clinic offering long-term care for substance abuse grounded in kindness, respect, and unconditional support. Boulder is backed by great VCs such as First Round, Graycroft, and Angels, such as Audrey Ostrovsky, who is the former CMO of U.S. Medicaid. Prior to Boulder, she worked at a $1.5 billion venture fund called Apple Tree Partners and held strategy operating and board roles with leading startups in outpatient opioid addiction treatment, mobile oncology, dermatology, and palliative care. A graduate of highest distinction from Duke's School of Public Policy, Stephanie previously consulted in Washington, D.C.'s merging programs for Medicaid beneficiaries during the passage of the ACA, among other health policy reforms. Without further ado, welcome, Stephanie. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to learn more about Boulder today and hear about your impressive background. I think would be helpful maybe to understand, you know, what were your career dreams when you're in high school? How did you first become interested in healthcare? I was in high school. Well, Barack Obama was just starting his first presidential campaign, and I was completely captivated by his language, obviously a very powerful orator, and became inspired by the notion that our generation had a key role to play in effectuating equal opportunity, social justice, and human progress. So I developed a real love for public policy and was just exhilarated by the idea of systems-level change particularly in healthcare. I had, as I'm sure so many of us do, experiences in the healthcare system and my own personal experience, a cancer diagnosis when I was 19. And just interacting with the healthcare system younger than most probably do and finding that these administrative challenges and pretty small breaks in the system can be so impactful on people's lives. So kind of marrying those two things, recognizing that changing our healthcare system, the way care is delivered, accessed and financed, could really be an impactful way to spend a career. Wow. So it really started early in your career. And I guess talking about sort of your involvement with ACA when you're in high school, were you from Washington, D.C. originally? How did you, how does one get involved in politics that early? Great question. So I was studying at Duke Public Policy and spent a semester in D.C. 2010 during healthcare reform. Same idealism I had, you know, seeing the administration start focusing on sweeping healthcare reform and successfully passing it for the first time after decades of, of trying. So on one hand, was so excited about what was on the horizon, alternative payment models, new ways of expanding access and demonstration programs across the country to test new models. On the other, recognize that politics, very different than policy and actually implementing these changes, was a pretty difficult landscape. And... We all want things to move quickly, and sometimes in these larger and more political organizations, it can be a little bit frustrating to see things get in the way of generally really positive policies that everyone is for. So that was a lesson for me and kind of what I wanted to do next, knowing I still had the same passion for systems-level change in healthcare and eventually finding my way into entrepreneurship and venture capital. We could see the same types of macro change, but much faster and with teams that you know move quickly towards shared goals. What was sort of your transition to venture capital and what was it like sort of working on the investing side? And then I guess after that, 
was it seeing other people found companies and being inspired by them that made you want to go on the operating side as well? Or I guess, what was the switch there? Absolutely loved working in venture and was focused in healthcare. So services companies and kind of more growth equity, as well as very early stage, one of our companies was incubating um, a digital health product. So really, just as you said, inspired by entrepreneurs and learning so much about so many different industries, but became particularly passionate about addiction medicine. And that was through one of our portfolio companies and work in the sector just really being enlightened by spending time at clinics and meeting these care teams and patients who were coming in with opioid or alcohol use disorders, um, often very sick. But after several weeks of working with their teams, you know, coming back and looking just like completely transformed, healthy and happy and talking about their new jobs or reuniting with their families. And I just recognize that we do have really effective ways of treating substance use disorder we're just not mm-hmm. accessing the country. So really diving in very deeply into all of the structural issues and barriers to expanding access to quality care and mm-hmm. became a bit more of an obsession. And so mm-hmm. while I never really planned to go into, quote, the operating side or found a company, the idea was so compelling and the mission was important. So being surrounded by people who also agreed and wanted to build something new was what ultimately led to founding Boulder in 2017. And I guess before we go into Boulder, which we'll definitely talk a lot about, I think it's pretty rare in venture for someone to really be on the ground talking to patients and sort of beyond just working with a portfolio company, actually like getting to meet people in the healthcare system. And I think it's kind of crazy to think about now just given COVID, but can you talk a little bit about your specific healthcare investing experience at Apple Tree and how it's different from other VCs potentially, or it sounds like it's like a really unique experience? I think it absolutely was. The more I work with other great venture firms, the more I recognize that being one of a team of two or three focused on healthcare services and technology, being able to go to every board meeting and spend time with the portfolio companies on site, connecting with the CEOs, it was, I think, rare and such great learning. So Mm -hmm. I tried to be helpful wherever I could. And I think venture, there's varying levels of participation and some more helpful than others, probably on the founder side, you know, recognizing that I get so much support in things that I never realized or would have thought to offer when I was in investing, making connections and driving relationships is important, but something like building a slide deck and just offering an extra set of hands and a very resource constrained company is really a godsend. So I tried to offer those small ways of help Mm -hmm. with, you know, our portfolio companies and ultimately the company that I worked with in the addiction medicine space, the founder and CEO was an early investor in Boulder and wanting to move forward kind of Mm -hmm. the next generation of addiction treatment. Yep. That's amazing. So I guess going back to 2017, so what was it like deciding that you would start a company? How does one start a company? (laughs) Do you have a co-founder? Where were you based at that point? Based in New York. And I spent several months (laughs) thinking back on it, really just kind of talking to as many people as possible, you know, had the benefit being in venture over a number of years to meet amazing founders and operators and people who had some battle scars and learnings from mm-hmm. what's really kind of the early digital health movement over the last seven years or so. So much has happened and was really fortunate to be kind of on the ground level for a lot of these really promising companies that are now having exits. So mm-hmm. got a lot of advice and support and early mentors who are now board members and still continue to be advisors for me from the very beginning were so helpful in moving things along. So we incorporated the company, the clinical advisors and 
people who I sort of knew from working in the addiction medicine space, foundational to everything that we do at Boulder is clinical quality and evidence-based medicine. So people who've been in this field for decades, well-published, and also have been treating people in some of the most challenged rural care settings for years and years. So their view on how we could build tools and solutions that actually really serve this population and then have the benefit of working with First Round, uh, our earliest mm-hmm. and lead investor in our seed, who introduced us to um, our now CTO, one of their oh, former wow. founders, and just a brilliant partner in building Boulder and great first investors that helped us build our network even further. Wow. So First Round introduced you to your CTO. Was it just serendipitous that they were looking for something in their next role or how did you convince them to jump ship? Yes, I'm not sure I can take credit for the convincing. <laughs> Josh Koppelman at first round was instrumental. And just this mission, the more you learn and kind of peel back the layers of the problems in the addiction treatment industry, the more you recognize how much tremendous potential there is for technology and solutions to make an impact on what was formerly the most defining public health crisis of our lifetimes and continues to perpetuate. And our team, Dave Lerman, our CTO, and many of the incredible engineers and product folks on the team today worked with him in his previous company outside of healthcare. Mm. So bridging um, clinicians and researchers with team from traditional kind of Silicon Valley startups and bringing together these cultures and best practices has been one of the most rewarding things about Boulder. Awesome. I guess before we go too deep into Boulder, can you tell the audience what Boulder is, what it provides today, and also sort of the scale of substance use disorder across the country? Absolutely. So Boulder Care is a digital clinic. We provide services for substance use disorder, exclusively over telemedicine, rooted in medication-based treatment and also a lot of ancillary support for long-term care. And the fundamentals, you know, Boulder Care really recognizing that we have evidence-based solutions for addiction treatment, but we aren't making it possible for people to access them or for treatment to be sustained over time. And everything we know about addiction is that it's a chronic condition and months or years of support can be really beneficial. But when the system is set up for a 30 or 90 day, you know, inpatient stay or outpatient that requires multiple trips to clinics, counselors, the pharmacy, labs, all in different places with providers that aren't necessarily talking to each other, it's incredibly complex for a patient, even on top of the typical complexities of the healthcare system, things like insurance and access issues. So really amazing that telehealth can very quickly expand access. Um, We have providers all over the country, as well as peer recovery specialists with lived experience in addiction um, who offer support and link people to local resources and to overcome some of the stigma and privacy concerns that people have as well in an in-person setting that can be really challenging. And through your offering, is there a fixed number of days in the program? What is the choice of treatment that you provide that is different from what traditionally is prescribed? And how many patients have you guys seen so far since you've launched? Great question. So the medical modality is medication-based. So drugs like buprenorphine or Suboxone are the gold standard for treating opioid use disorder. The evidence is pretty unassailable. And fortunately, it's also really affordable uh, compared to inpatient residential stays or many other options that have been kind of the first line. Just, you know, you think if someone is sick with addictive disease, send them away, send them to rehab, or this kind of 
harmful notion that someone has to hit quote unquote rock bottom or be very, very sick before they seek care. When just like any other condition, there are multiple stages of a disease and getting treated early and what we call harm reduction, helping people be safe and meet their own individual goals. Over time, incredible evidence about the health outcomes and savings for the system. So generic medications readily available. And in France, when the government chose to take down some of the regulations that were constraining access to buprenorphine, they saw their national overdose rate decrease 80% in just three wow. years. And so this, this really is powerful. in France? It's in France, yep. Wow. And this is in the recent years or has it been a couple of years already? It's been several, and there are actually case studies from many, many other countries and in pockets of our country as well, where we see what happens when we expand access to medication-based treatments and harm reduction in communities. But still, there are you know, abstinence-based programs that have messages that resonate with some, but for others are really exclusive. And things like 12-step or Alcoholics Anonymous, they, again, work for some people, but not everyone. And we really need to expand our toolkit and be looking at the data in really changing the way that we think about addiction treatment. So we, older are very evidence-based. We really look to the evidence, but also the individual, making sure that we understand what goals matter to them. And that may not have anything to do with their substance use. It may be regaining custody of their children or going back to school, being able to spend more time with their family on weekends. So these are the things that we track and also help people, you know, in small steps, really reach their goals and celebrate them. That's amazing. I think sometimes there's such a big problem with stigma, with substance abuse, and a lot of it has to do with external factors in people's lives. And it's not just related to specifically the drug. It's usually a byproduct of of social determinants. So it's really awesome that you guys look at a holistic view. I was wondering, so just to put in perspective, how prevalent is this problem in the U.S.? I'm currently based in Philadelphia, and I think I've heard that Philadelphia has a really big problem as well. I'd love to hear more about how big this problem is in the scale in the U.S. As much as 12% of the population is struggling with opioid and alcohol use disorder, and we know that COVID has been really challenging. Just as you said, the social impacts and the context are profoundly important in the success for addiction treatment. So for people who are socially isolated, facing economic hardship, losing work, or losing access to substances that they physically depend on. We are seeing across at least 40 states, major increases in overdose rates year over year. So it's only become more important really for every type of medicine, but for ours as well, for telemedicine to play an important role in keeping people in care and finding ways to, through behavioral health and medical health, support Mm -hmm. people in a difficult time. In terms of the COVID regulations, can you talk about how the public health emergency declaration affected sort of Boulder and how you would be offering your product to patients? Yes, I think the entire industry, all healthcare services, we've seen this amazing increase in telemedicine adoption. And I think it's proof not only that it was always something that consumers would really value, but also that when we take down some of the regulatory barriers and introduce financial incentives, you know, actually make it possible for providers to offer it at parity with their other in-person services, the potential is so great for people to get care that wouldn't otherwise or to bring costs down across the board. So mm-hmm. for addiction, then even more profound changes during the public health emergency One important change happened earlier this year in 
eliminating at the federal level what was previously required as one in-person visit for anyone seeking medication treatment for addiction. After that one visit to establish a relationship, telemedicine prescribing you know, is compliant from there forward. But that one visit actually presents a huge barrier for the people we care for in Alaska, for example, who would have to take three flights to get to the closest program. Or for anyone who's really ready and feeling a moment of clarity and, and wanting to seek help, having to call several different facilities only to find that there's a six to eight week long wait list and that they don't accept their Medicaid insurance, for example. This happens all of the time and people are slipping through the cracks. When we can bring them on straight away, now through Google search or Facebook, that's how we're able to recruit a lot of our participants. And that's happened for the first time this year because of that waiver of the, what's called the Ryan Hate Act. And that's amazing. Do you think that this sort of elimination of the in-person visit will stay in the future, hopefully when things become back to normal? Do you think that the demand we're seeing in telemedicine is here to stay? In our sector, there has been a lot of dialogue at the federal level about reforming this particular in-person requirement for a long time. It was sort of an unintended consequence of the policy that was meant to protect people from other controlled substances online but instead is acting as a barrier to treatment for those substances. So the DEA had promised in 2019 we would see some new certifications for telehealth providers to ensure quality of care and patient safety, but also lift some of these barriers. And it was delayed, and only with the kind of impetus of the COVID emergency did we start getting into this this new world where I think a lot of providers, certainly everyone in our, our network and addiction treatment, are recognizing what we've seen for a long time, that there is so much you can learn when you're invited into someone's home or in some cases their car. You see the context, again, the social determinants, things that are important to the patient or maybe threatening their health or safety, and we can intervene and develop relationships that are, I think, more intimate than asking someone to come to a clinic, wait in the waiting room and spend you know, 10 minutes with them after what could be a very long bus ride or a trip away from work family. So all of these proof points and stories, the data that we're generating, we certainly hope to bring to the forefront in trying to advocate for longer-term change. There will be state-by-state decisions to make, and obviously there's a lot of other you know, telemedicine and kind of social services that need to be you know, considered in the coming months as we still cope with uh, the public health emergency. But this is an important one with a really high potential for broader societal impact for the opioid epidemic that preceded the Mm -hmm. COVID emergency. Right. And I'm assuming that Boulder has seen an uptick in demand. In general, it's like a great thing for a startup to see that demand generation. But I'm wondering if you had any challenges serving that demand right away, or how did you deal with any potential obstacles during COVID? Absolutely have seen a lot of growth this year. I think over five times the panel size we were when we started 2020 and continue to grow. A large piece of that was a partnership with a major Blue Cross plan, Primera, in Pacific Northwest, which let us bring care to their two plus million members with no copay or out-of-pocket cost to the member this year. We also opened our virtual doors to all comers and wanted to make sure that we could treat people who reached out to us regardless of their insurance carrier or ability to pay. So through some support from our nonprofit partners at Acumen, Impact Investors who have been really supportive, particularly in our treatment of low-income Americans and people get their insurance from Medicaid or under or uninsured, we've really made an impact this year. 
So it's mm-hmm. been a lot of growth and our team has really stepped up. We continue to recruit incredible clinicians, care advocates and peer recovery coaches that comprise the Boulder Care team and work together to make sure that we're supporting with each other and our patients. Can you talk a little bit about, since you mentioned the clinicians, I think what's unique about Boulder is how you onboard your physicians and how you work with them. Can you talk a little bit about that? We do have just incredible clinicians, both physicians and nurse practitioners, and we employ everyone we work with. So some telemedicine companies have more of a contractor model. For us, it's really important that our providers are close to the mission and well-supported in our protocols and training. So addiction is something that is really not taught in medical schools, you know, as much as it's a critical problem for our country. It's, it's been neglected a bit over the years. And we also started the company recognizing that practitioners in the community who wanted to treat patients with opioid use disorder didn't have the support. There's not a lot of support for providers who already have a lot of compliance and regulatory things to think about with added scrutiny for this condition and prescribing controlled substances. And without having resources like behavioral health providers or mental health providers in their community to help with some of the psychosocial components of addiction treatment. So we want to make sure we're offering that experience to everyone that we employ for our care teams, giving them technology to provide tools that make it much easier to practice and um, develop patient relationships, communicate with each other across the care team. And of course, the training and education in our protocols so that we can ensure we're setting a higher standard. There's been a lot of misinformation in the addiction treatment industry, and we want to be really transparent in publishing our outcomes. And we're working on a number of research studies, including one funded by the NIH here in Oregon with OHSU. And I think it's so important for all digital health, but certainly in addiction medicine, to be showing outcomes that matter and measuring them. And what are the outcomes that you maybe this is part of the trial, but what are the outcomes that you foresee are the most important in determining how it's moving the needle? Our most important outcomes are retention and care, patient satisfaction, and functional outcomes beyond just the medical, but really thinking about how we're helping the whole person. And we've been just incredibly excited this year now that we have a much larger panel to see replicable outcomes to our pilots over the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. over 90% retention and care at six and nine months wow. and above an industry average of 30 to 40%. So that's amazing. Um, yes. And I think also speaks to patient satisfaction. Um, we have an NPS score of 89 and so many case studies of validation that we're really solving problems for a very diverse group of people in many different ways, you know, making care more accessible and convenient or reaching someone who is getting their telemedicine visit from a Starbucks parking lot. And these are exactly what we were hoping to do when we started the company is reach a very wide range of population. And the final outcome, so functional outcomes in care, measuring things like patients' ability to meet the goals that they set and their health-related quality of life, which is a CDC-validated metric that basically measures how many healthy days someone had um, that month. And of course, whether they're reporting using substances as well over the last 30 days. So seeing great outcomes across the board. That's amazing. I'm curious. So on the point of a lot of telehealth companies potentially not employing their clinicians full time and how that really drives difference. I'm also curious, like another thing that a lot of digital health companies think about in the very early stages is 
how they should go to market and figuring out who's going to pay. Because obviously that's sort of the biggest problem. Healthcare is like aligning the different stakeholders. And so I'm curious, like how you decided to, how you would go to market. Is it sort of a smooth path in the beginning or was it sort of like a test and test with the payer? Let's test with directly to consumer and see which one sticks. Exactly right. I don't think any healthcare services entrepreneur would say it's been an easy path. It's just a very traditional industry and we're trying to bring new solutions to payers and both governmental and private um, that have you know ways of doing things. So there's a lot of work that goes into developing a partnership that aligns the ROI between us as the provider and our payer partners. But I think those are the most exciting businesses as well as those that really are thinking about the system and how to realign some of these incentives and the kind of B2B to C dynamic. It's complicated, but it's one of the most important. So there have been some very successful companies that are more self-pay, direct-to-consumer. They generally go around the current system or are built on top of it so that people can have the means to, can buy a a better consumer experience, access things more conveniently or quickly. But what we're trying to really build is a model that rewards outcomes and realigns incentives across payers, providers, um, us, you know, as the digital provider and the people we care for. And for us, that means not putting the burden on the patient to pay out of pocket. Instead, looking to stakeholders who have the greatest economic benefit to gain from treating opioid use disorder in their population, um, and that's the payer. But we know that the fee-for-service model doesn't always reward the outcomes that are most important. So, you know, if you're only reimbursing for clinical visits and you're in drug testing, there's scarce evidence that those things lead to good outcomes and actually can be harmful when they present barriers to people getting care. Many of the things that Boulder does in our model, peer recovery coaching, text messaging late into the night when someone needs something, or being able to coordinate with a pharmacy, these are things that take a lot of time but aren't necessarily attached to billing codes. So what we've developed is more of a value-based care model that lets us work with payers in bringing down their total cost of care per member, which for untreated opioid use disorder can be 550% more expensive on a per member basis. And everyone wins when the patient gets well. We only do what's clinically necessary to ensure that that happens over time, bringing down you know total cost to the system while improving outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious in terms of the partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield is super impressive in terms of milestones. How does, if an entrepreneur is starting out and they haven't successfully established any partnerships with payers, what do you need to prove to the payers before you can secure that pilot? It's not an easy question to answer. <laughs> you know, increasingly, because healthcare investors or you know, traditional venture capital investors are coming into healthcare are recognizing that there is a strong market for payers to be using digital health solutions and there is willingness to pay for program efficacy. There's a bit more investment earlier on to help entrepreneurs actually build what they need to do to show those outcomes, building a product, recruiting a team. And that's what venture capital really should be doing is helping to pre-revenue, build the right product and, and bring it to market. And That has been challenging for digital health entrepreneurs for some time in having to kind of negotiate how much to go directly to consumers just to get started and show what they need to show in terms of outcomes and demand 
to get that first round of fundraising or to you know ink a deal with a payer. And we were very fortunate and just having a proven team and a model that um, is evidence-based in person and kind of translating that into a digital experience, a lot of research behind the fundamentals of our program and a progressive payer that was excited about being a launch partner and kind of viewed our infancy as a strength. That came together, but I, I definitely being on the investor side and having a lot of colleagues in industry have seen several years and several million dollars necessary before you can get to that B2B2C model, even if that's what your founding um, you know, <laughs> concept wanted to do. And so I think there is mm-hmm. tremendous opportunity for investors to kind of see that funding a B2B2C strategy, that patient capital is ultimately going to get to that outcome faster and be right. a competitive. Right. Makes sense. That's helpful. I'd love to talk about sort of your fundraising process and also at the same time, it sounds like you guys are growing really quickly and you mentioned you're hiring for the team. Our audience members may be interested in potentially opportunities with Boulder. So I guess like we can start with fundraising. I know there's a lot of topics. I mean, congratulations on raising Series A December 2019. I'm curious if you have any like nuggets of advice for those who are raising a seed or a Series A round. You know, what are learnings that you took away from your personal experiences? Uh, Definitely um, a lot of support that I had and advice early on and recognizing the challenges of fundraising in healthcare, fundraising as a first-time founder. Now I'm sure there's even greater difficulty without the ability to meet someone in person and having to do all of this during COVID. So it's not easy. Persistence definitely pays off and finding partners who are philosophically aligned, actually far more important than the reputation of the firm or the speed to getting that first check, I think is developing the relationships that will help you um, for the years to come. It's a really important decision. So we built a board that we feel are so important to our overall success. And after raising our seed and now series A, have a much better sense of what our product market fit looks like and how we might think about the next couple of rounds in bringing more diverse perspectives to the table. And I'm curious in terms of your milestones for Series B, if you could reveal generally how you envision Boulder at the Series B point. It's a great question. One of the strategic decisions we've made that we think is important for our model is rather than starting with kind of a, a national expansion strategy and getting to as many states as quickly as possible, we've gone deep in our first region. So in Pacific Northwest, we continue to build relationships with major referral sources, emergency departments, primary care clinicians, community-based organizations. We hire peer coaches who are either in those communities or very familiar with them so that they can be resources and help link people to local meetings or faith-based organizations, food banks. And all of these relationships are generating a lot of organic growth for us in addition to what we can do through paid ads. And so what we are hoping to do is prove out the model here in the Pacific Northwest and then show that we can scale it to many other regions with payer partners across the country. So we'll look to before Series B, of course, we've shown volume and growth, but also in those diverse channels with our marketing cost of acquisition coming down and continue to show great outcomes even at scale. So those things mm-hmm. we talked about, yes, and you know, retention rates, that program efficacy is key. And I think the Series B will be about around national expansion and continuing to build our product 
so that we can take a bit of the burden off of the care teams. Obviously, in the beginning, everything is much more services intensive and start to really make things easier and more efficient for them, as well as learn more about the individuals that we're treating so that we can tailor care and better predict how to serve people with different attributes. And I'm curious for all of those milestones and you know, really doubling down on the Pacific Northwest, what are you evaluating in terms of hiring right now? I'm sure you're hiring across board. I'd love to hear sort of areas that you are specifically hiring for and what you value beyond just the technical expertise of the role. What do you value in terms of the culture and the types of people that you have joined the team? We're definitely hiring and particularly in areas of operations, which I think speaks to that question, what are we trying to build in our culture? And we've got an incredible team of product development, you know, engineering designers, as well as a care team, very diverse people all over the country. And bringing all of that together into a cohesive culture and kind of learning to speak the same language from many different industries and backgrounds requires work, but it's very, very worthwhile work. So always seeking people who are you know, excited and passionate about bringing together services and technology to ultimately serve patients. And I think we're looking to hire probably a couple of other marketing roles in the next year, as well as continued growth in our product development group. Awesome. I'll definitely put a shout out for the hiring link um, in our Medium post. I'd love to sort of wrap up with two questions. So one is, what advice do you have for aspiring founders who are interested in starting a healthcare startup? And then we also would like to wrap up with any fun hobbies you've developed in COVID. (laughs) Fantastic. I think advice to healthcare founders talked about persistence. It's really important, I think, to stick to your vision and mission. There are much easier ways in entrepreneurship to build a company quickly and to acknowledge that this is more of a journey and that some of the most important work does take several years managing stakeholders and, again, looking for those ways that you can align your ROI with that of uh, some of these major um, governmental and private payers or working with clinician practices and health systems that are also operating under practices that may be very different from a startup or tech company, but looking for ways that you can align and help bring those strengths to those organizations and leverage the strengths that they have after decades of doing this work. Awesome. And I heard that you recently got eloped and <laughs> also got a dog, but you know, any other, if you have other hobbies too, love to hear about them. <laughs> Yes, it's always so inspiring to see our team, a lot of young children and very you know, hectic circumstances at home with virtual learning, yet I can't seem to keep my puppy out of the view of our Zoom screen all day, every day. Oh. <laughs> it's um, been fun to have you know, a little golden retriever and some oh, yeah. outdoor space, which we did not have formerly in Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. um, the natural beauty of the Pacific Northwest and very fortunate to have a little extra space and generally be safe and well. I know it's a very difficult time for so many. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Super jealous of your puppy <laughs> and uh, really appreciate you spending the time with us on the Pulse podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vivian. It's great to be with you.